securing your data has to be a part of your business line. It is a basic requirement now to put an alarm on a physical building. It should be a basic requirement to put certain amount of security in front of your data now. We should no longer be thinking about it as a separate cost center that security wants to do. Security doesn't exist without the business, right? So I think that's the part of the thing that we have to change, right? Is we have to think about it as one business operation and security is trying to enable and protect those business operations. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Andy Piazza, Global Head of Threat Intelligence at IBM's X-Force. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you. I'm excited for this. Excellent. Thank you. So you have a serious background, lots of avenues there. Uh, you've covered both physical operations as well as uh, cyber threat stuff. Walk us through how you got to where you're at and in particular, you know, your experiences along the way. Sure. Yeah. I originally grew up in California, out in San Diego and post 9-11, I, I joined the Army part of the you know delayed entry program. So I actually showed up uh, March 2003 as they were invading Iraq. I was going into boot camp. Failed out of EOD school, their their bomb disposal uh, folks. Uh, turns out that's a really really hard school, and got reclassed to be a military police soldier. And I, I spent four years in Missouri in a combat unit, and that really exposed me to tears in, in Iraq in the early days, from 2004 to 2006. Really exposed me to to kind of this whole rec model thing that I would use much later in the cyber realm. Right, as you know, every day we were driving around Baghdad, my, my squad leader would be asking kind of the threat modeling questions, right? If, if this happens, then what are you going to do, right? And I really enjoyed those challenges from that side. Uh, and then I was lucky to spend my last four years in the Army at eight total. My last four was at the Army Intel headquarters here in Virginia at Fort Belvoir, responsible for the security forces there guarding the building, got exposed to Intel, ended up doing a master's degree in intelligence so I could um, make that transition as I got out of the Army. Was doing some physical security stuff in the Pentagon, got to support the Secretary of Defense Communications Office, as a security manager, that you know, SecDef travels all around the world, and so we started kind of doing some of the threat intel brief for for their travel and what kind of cyber threats the travel exposed them to. And my previous company gave me the opportunity to switch over to be a threat analyst. After that, I was a, a supported U.S. CERT uh, along with Fort Vizsa as a threat analyst, and had a really good opportunity there working with their cyber information sharing and collaboration programs, CISP, uh, right, working with private sector companies, critical infrastructure. Um, learning how to share intel and, and what was important for downstream, you know, stakeholders and defenders. Right. Then pivoted over was contractor uh, threat hunter, uh, threat intel lead support United States Postal Service. That's where I learned how to threat hunt. Uh, real fun environment is uh, learning, you know, both answer, you know, CISO questions. Right, we would uh, regularly kind of get those RFIs um, down from the boss, but also you know trying to apply you know, threat intel from a tactical perspective into a security operations center. So. I uh, had a couple other stints along the way uh, before coming here to take over X-Force Threat Intel a little over a year ago. And now I, I get to lead a, a group of amazing teams tracking threat actors all around the world. Uh, we support all the X-Force incident response engagements, which has just been really, really cool exposure to a lot of different problem sets as we work with different clients or in different industries and different geos, just understanding what, what they're concerned about and what they're seeing in their environments. Excellent. So when you were doing the DEP, I was in the Marine Corps for what it's worth. So I, I know some folks who did the DEP. You were getting your degree? Yeah, I was going to a, a community college in, in California and was uh, still working on my 
my uh, associates at the time and then ended up uh, shipping off before I finished that. So finished all that while I was active duty. Well, for what it's worth, you got lucky because I knew a couple of Marines who were still enlisted because they were in the DAP. So you still have to enlist, but they could have gone to get a commission and their career planner, once you get into the fleet, Marine Corps, career planner is not keen to let you go be a Mustang and put on bars, right? So they had to live out four years on a contract, knowing the whole time that had they just finished school and then talked to a recruiter, they would have came in as a uh, lieutenant and not have to live with the rest of us in the barracks. So anyway, back to InfoSec. So tell me, you know, what's a typical day look like for you? Uh, how does it unfold? And, you know, what's the most exciting parts of it? Yeah, with, with my current role, like, you know, I try to have a good split between working with my, my actual teams, right? My, my direct reports and, and my analysts, and then also supporting clients, right? With their intelligence needs and, and engaging. So, you know, some days it's it's working. We have a pretty cool, amazing global kind of uh, honeypot collection framework, you know, collecting emails and IoT malware and a number of other things all around the world. So working with my team, they've done some amazing things for, you know, we collect malware automatically. We've identified a number of families that we care about you know, usually really focused on like kind of the precursors to ransomware, knowing that that's really the big thorn in, in customer side, right? We're trying to get ahead of ransomware. So we're, we're getting a lot of those initial downloaders. What the team's done is they've automated um, the identification analysis of those. We know how they're, you know, obfuscated, how they're encoded. So we automatically decode the, we pull out the key pieces that we care about with some additional parsing script and we share that intel out. So working with those folks that are, you know, helping drive strategy with them for what we're specific regions we're targeting in. So we, we've invested a lot recently for obvious reasons in the last year in Eastern Europe for, for collecting interesting malware. Also Latin America, we've, we've seen some really cool, interesting threats there. So I try to meet with our collections team uh, regularly to, to hear you know how those new collection efforts are doing and if, if they're bearing fruit. And then on the flip side, I, I take those outputs and I end up um, breaking clients often, um, engaging with executive leadership teams, CISOs and more boards and, and talking about the types of things that we're seeing and you know helping them understand what the what the real risk is you know it's really easy for folks to see the big flashy you know nation state problems and working with clients to really understand what their threat landscape is and whether or not they need to worry about nation states or if you know business email compromise or ransomware is really the the higher threat for them so being able to take that data out and kind of really drive the silhouette to them so like i said uh, yeah day-to-day it's somewhere between hopefully 50 50 getting to work with my analysts directly but I also really enjoy talking to clients and hearing what their challenges are. Excellent. So does the data that you guys collect, uh, does it make it into your products as well, or is it largely internal use? No, yeah, we have a premier threat intelligence offering that we sell through Xforce Exchange. So it's not just a free portal, the Xforce Exchange is actually a free portal familiar with like Alien Vault OTX. It's very similar to that. You can have three accounts, but then we also have our commercial reporting that goes through that as well. Um, we're integrated into all of the big threat intelligence platforms as well. So Anomaly, Threat Connect, Analyst One. But yeah, then we integrated with uh, QRadar and the rest of the QRadar suite, as we're calling it now, right? So seeing EDR, all of that can be integrated. Sure. Super familiar with that product. Uh, that's what I have our SOC uh, using as well, uh, SCIO. So we were, uh, we were very pleased with, like you said, the kind of diverse set of information that's in there. So even as a threat intelligence producer, we're still downstream from you. So that's why I asked. I was uh, hoping that would be your answer. So now you came from physical space to physical security, obviously patrols aside, but actual physics stuff, you know, with uh, uh, federal services and then now transitioning into uh, cyber stuff. What would you say that most practitioners today, what do they get wrong when thinking about the kind of overlap between FizSec and CyberSec. 
Like, cause there, there is, I mean, a lot of people think of it wholly in terms of like unauthorized access to data centers and things like that. But what are some other things that they should think about? And more importantly, what do you think a lot of people get wrong? I think the biggest thing that we got wrong for a very long time, really, and I, I hate to give ransomware operators credit because they all deserve to be in jail, but it wasn't until we started seeing threat actors and crypt systems that we were really started to treat information security or cybersecurity as an actual business operations problem. It used to be IT and security was over there in the corner and they maintained our systems. And I think, you know, when we, when people would talk about, oh, they stole our data. Well, generally they didn't steal the data because they weren't removing it. They were copying it, right? And you still had access to the data and it really wasn't impacting business operations until we started to see encryption and leak operations and other things that were actually putting pressure on the business. So I think for a long time, the part we were getting wrong was that security or IT and in general, even IT, right? Not just security, but that was an over there problem. Now we're realizing, I mean, any business now is an IT business, right? You're, you're, you know, 99% of businesses are online in some way, right? Even my pops out in California does a construction, you know, concrete and driveways, that type of stuff. They're getting all their blueprints digitally now through a portal. They don't roll them out and measure them anymore. So everything is, is integrated in the software now. Everything's an IT problem or an IT business in some way. I think the, the big thing that for me, that I've been able to leverage with my physical security background and just general security operations out in the you know, kind of meat space, as we call it, right? The physical world, being able to translate some of the complicated, super nerdy stuff that we get excited about, being able to translate that into a normal business speak, right? So it's really easy for us to use big words around you know, different types of, whether it's encryption or threat actor attacks or the stupid way we name threat actors and malware names, but translating that to real business operations and real physical space, right? Someone's breaking into your physical building, right? You can't just say, I think a lot of businesses are right, look at security as an extra cost center. Well, you don't think about that if you're printing t-shirts. T-shirts are, are not a cost center. It's a part of your business line, right? Securing your data has to be a part of your business line. It is a basic requirement now to put an alarm on a physical building. It should be a basic requirement to put a certain amount of security in front of your data now. We should no longer be thinking about it as a separate cost center that security wants to do. Security doesn't exist without the business, right? So I think that's the part of the thing that we have to change, right? Is we have to think about it as one business operation and security is trying to enable and protect those business operations. It's not separate. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. It is incredibly overlooked. It's a shame, in my opinion, how many people find out the hard way, the criticality of it, because a lot of people see security, a lot of businesses see security as some kind of compliance component, like they have to do this in order to get insurance, or they have to do this to get some type of certification. And they totally overlook the fact that no, these days, you have to do this to stay in business because there are people who will hinder your ability to do business at all if you don't have some type of security in place. So to ask you something tangential at the beginning of what you're talking about, specifically ransomware, and the reason why I ask this is because Xforce, you guys have a very large and diverse customer view, right? Like you see uh, victimology in a completely different scale than most. Can I ask you, 
how often do you see exfiltration of data for later use, either for aftermarket sale or for extortion or things like that prior to the encryption phase of these endeavors? Because the encryption and the ransoming of the decryption is what everybody thinks of when they think ransomware. But I know that that's not always the case. But one thing that I don't have a lot of insight on is, in fact, how prevalent are these kind of ulterior games or ulterior monetizations of the breach? How often does that happen? We'll quote a statistic, right? Yeah, off the top of my head because I'd be wrong. But uh, most of the cases that we're going on now have a double extortion component, right, where they steal the data before encrypting it so that they not just have the pressure of your systems are encrypted and sure you might have a, an amazing resiliency program and start restoring those systems immediately. But now I've also got a copy of your intellectual property or customer data that I can then leak out to the site. So a lot of the big threat actors that we see in the ransomware space, you know, they have public leak sites and, and onion uh, routed leak sites, right? And they'll start kind of naming and shaming. We see some groups that will do it kind of quietly and they'll only mention the customer or the, the impact of client. Other ones will, you know, will do a sample of the data. Other ones will do full release. It's been interesting actually just to watch which groups kind of do different market things because we have to remember that these are, you know, we often talk about them in the dark, you know, marketplace. It really is its own ecosystem of business loans, right? There are folks we call initial access brokers. Their whole job is just to get the initial footprint, right? The kind of fish a user or exploit a system, and then they sell that access to somebody else. Point one, that's an opportunity for us as defenders to detect that long before ransomware. Not only the compromise, but if you have like a dark web monitoring service, you can actually monitor for folks talking about selling those credentials. And essentially, yes, you still had a compromise, but you're, you're way ahead or at least several days, hopefully ahead of a ransomware event. So there's still an opportunity to detect there too. So we have the initial access brokers, plus we have the folks that are actually doing, you know, actions on the objective, stealing the data. That can often take, you know, several days to months, depending on the group. Those all give us opportunity to detect and respond and stop it before the ransomware, right? We can, we can hit those initial downloaders. We can find those initial backdoors and respond before the encryption event. And then of course, there's the full on encryption, right? And, you know, the bold joke was, how do you know if you've been ransomware? Don't worry, they'll let you know because they literally pop up with notes on the desktop, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we, I would say the majority of the cases, you know, for the last few years were what we call the double extortion, right? Where they're stealing the information so that they can then leverage it as a pressure point. And that's a big thing that we want to talk about in general, right? Is it's not about encrypting systems. It's about extortion, right? It is a way for them to get muddled from a, a target. And so we've been paying attention to see, you know, what's the next evolution of that extortion. Um, I think the, the move it case was really interesting. Uh, well, I should say cases, right? With the recent vulnerability cooperate somewhere group. Well, they, everybody referring to it as the clock ransomware thing that really was a ransom, right? They stole a bunch of data and they were, they were threatening to extort these clients, but there was no actual encryption of it. So we almost have to break our model of what we think of now with ransomware. They've gone, at least in that case, right? They went away from encrypting systems and they were only stealing it and then trying to pressure companies to pay before they released everything. So, you know, like the extortion piece and the psychology of that has been really interesting to watch. You know, we, we may have seen little, the Conti leaks. I think it was last year now. Uh, you know, everything in cyber time is years yeah. ago, if it's five minutes ago. But absolutely. Uh, we saw it with the Conti leaks and we see it with some of the dark web monitoring that we do, some of the threat actor tracking. Like when a company is initially compromised and they're talking to these threat actors, to whatever channels the, the threat actors established for chat, they're like some of the 
best customer service, the threat actor is like some, because they think you you know still have an opportunity to pay you, right? So they're super nice to these folks. I mean, I, I call it the Chick-fil-A level of service, right? Lots of please and thank yous type of thing. And it's only until that, you know, they realize a company's not going to play ball and pay that they can get, then get much nastier. You know, and there's, there's a risk there, right? With engaging with a, with a ransomware operator in, in any case, you know, they had access to your environment, especially in the cases now where they're stealing data without the ransomware, they had access to your environment, right? But you want to make sure or pissing them off that you've isolated and contained all of their access to your environment, right? They, they could do much worse things. So, you know, highly encourage clients to have, you know, mature incident response playbooks and, and tested plans or have an incident response retainer to really make sure that, that they've identified root cause and contain the threat actor especially if they're going to go down the path of engaging with them through these chat systems. Sure. No, absolutely agreed. Yeah. That's a, um, you know, interacting with adversaries. Most people, I hate to say it, as much as they think they have kind of the interpersonal skills, you know, to navigate the grocery store, you know, working with people like that is far more risky than say trying to buy a new car, right? Like everybody imagines, you know, the lead sales guy at, at a car dealership, right? Like this is a guy who can talk you into anything, right? And, and you go in prepared for that. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that these people are even better than that uh, because that car salesman isn't going to go to jail if he says something wrong. Whereas these people are even more savvy. And and uh, I've read a couple dialogues where it went sideways on them in the conversation. And like you said, they do get nasty. And in some cases, if you saw, I'm trying to think of the company now that it happened to, it just happened recently. It was uh, another cyber company that they tried to extort, maybe in Dragos or somebody like that, but they tried to extort them and, and they started sending them pictures of their families and stuff. Yeah. Like they, they pivoted and started finding, going through their social media and saying, oh, it'd be a shame if, you know, something happened to, you know, your beautiful wife here and, and started to even leverage that. And like, if that doesn't bring it home that these people are like legitimate criminals who would use a gun just as likely as they would use a laptop, you know, cause that's their mentality. I don't know what will. So talking about practitioners. So next 10 years, right? Things have changed a lot in the last 10 years and you were there navigating those changes, right? What would you say are the most critical skills needed for practitioners to kind of get through in 10 years, maybe a stretch. So, you know, you could pick a smaller number if, if you think it'll change that drastically, but what skill sets uh, do you think practitioners need to succeed? Yeah, I say it depends on what side. I think starting to see the community the cybersecurity community in two halves, right? The vendor side and the defender side, and we're finally making that split and it makes me happy. There's a number of conversations about, you know, what we need to do as vendors, right? Whether that's a commercial vendor or even, you know, government side, right? The citizens of the world. We talk about what we produce and how we produce Intel should be much different than how a consumer cyber threat intelligence analyst integrates that intelligence, right? So I want to first acknowledge that separation. And I want to hopefully see that continue because much as we're we're seeing a lot of businesses move to the cloud and a lot of security is now moving purely into the vendor space, right? I want to make sure that we think about that from the consumer side or the defender side. How do I best leverage my relationship with my vendors and their visibility and their access rather than try to replicate what they do? You know, as a threat intel guy, I've worked with clients and they're like, yeah, we're building out our actor profiles. And I'm like, why? We publish those. You have full access to them. Why would you waste that time? And I think of the same way we do that in, you know, detection engineering. You know, I hate the fact that organizations as defenders need to hire detection engineers that we on the vendor side 
haven't given them good enough detections. I understand configuring detections for their environment, right? Adding certain things to a, a, the allow list or configuration, right? So it doesn't alert. But the idea that we're seeing most of that activity from the threat actor perspective on the vendor side, whether it's us or, you know, maybe it's Microsoft's crowd strikes, like we should be able to be pushing enough detection. So five years from now, I really like to see us go back to where we just need security engineers on the defender side. We're configuring these things. And that's purely because it frustrates me that the clients would have to deal with, with kind of cleaning up. Right. So, you know, echo, uh, scissors, I think straight from the, the white house policy, right. Of like secure by design. Well, we need to do that. Not just from the software side, writing software, but how we're defending it too. We need to be securing it by design on the vendor side. On the consumer side, I, I would love, like I said, ensuring that they're maximizing their capabilities that they get through us and, you know, whether that's log access or, you know, asking us for, for better, you know, understanding of, of alerts that are generated in their environment, but really maximizing what they can do. And that's applying security to their environments rather than managing, having to manage our tools and stuff. So again, I use the threat intel example of, you know, the Defender Threat Intel team shouldn't have to create threat actor profile. We already knew that. Detectable engineers shouldn't have to write detections from scratch, right? They should be demanding those from their platforms when new threats are coming out. I would really love to see that relationship strengthened. I've been in a number of teams that we didn't engage with our vendors enough, right? And that's often a problem on the Defender side where we didn't engage with them and ask them questions. If we saw a problem with their platform, we would just complain about the problem with the platform for years, but never actually realize there's probably engineers and developers who would be happy to fix it, right? If we just brought it up to them. So I think that would be the best thing for at least kind of the security side of managing risk is to get a better understanding and to further clarify kind of roles and responsibilities between the organization defense team and the, the vendors they leverage to, to help secure them. Yeah, wholly agreed. You know, you talk about the, everybody wanting to roll their own. I see that a lot. And one of the things that I've noticed that is a large driver for that decision is this idea that you're special as far as a target goes. And I get it. And in some ways, every target is special, right? Like if you are in a specific niche business, if you are doing some kind of unique thing, like maybe you only service one industry, so maybe your risks are more aligned to that. But the idea that if you're not willing to believe that a huge swath of your intelligence can be provided by someone who's kind of watching the collective and given to you in a way that allows you to funnel it down into whatever vein that it is you're looking at, to not at least see that as a huge time saver to where then you can focus on doing proactive security based on what you see actually making it through that other policy. You can sit down and, and figure, oh, okay, well, this person must be truly unique and then focus on that one person. But it is also baffling to me why someone would try to stand up a desk who specializes in, like you said, let's say actor dossiers, right? That takes years of experience to do right. Like unless you came out of some agency somewhere where that's what you did, the idea that you would sit down and just roll your own program like that is like very, very naive. But we do see it a lot. I see it oftentimes where people who are afraid to disclose to anybody what keeps them up at night. 
as if like a company such as yours, X-Force, I mean, you guys probably service literally every market sector that there is. So you have on hand experts who know retail, experts who knows medical, experts who know, I mean, you name the industry, right? But people think, oh, well, that's those problems. You know, they don't have our problems. And it's always been very interesting to me. There are very big companies out there in the world that have very lean teams because they have the the wherewithal, let's call it, to rely on vendor expertise. And then there are other folks out there who have like their own X-Force, you know, like they've employed 300 analysts. Though someone on the team that speaks, you know, I don't know, Farsi or something, it's like, often you get an adversary where you're trying to determine a pattern of life on them and to where you're getting that level of attribution where you need an expert in that, you know, thing. And it's like, I gives them some kind of assurance for, you know, well, when it happens, we'll have this person. But I mean, forever is a long time to pay someone and never use them, you know, like to their full potential. And wouldn't it be better to put in somebody who you will make use of, you know, like another security engineer who can implement this stuff. So, but I would echo your concerns there because we see it often. And it is a shame. I don't know if as product, because, you know, I'm a vendor too. I make threat intelligence products, right? And I don't know if it's like, we're not good at articulating those realities, like that you do get value out of like what gets caught in the, what's considered the big net, that there is value in that, that not everything needs to be, you know, unique and specific. There is like a big chunk of threat in the world where they are so opportunistic that they don't care that you're special. You're only special to you. To them, you're just another potential victim, you know? And I don't know if maybe we don't market it well, or we just don't. There's something unconvincing about it because we do end up leaving like a large, I'll call it large, but a large chunk of decision makers end up being in this position where they say, no, I don't trust that these external people understand my risks understand my actual appetite for those risks. And they certainly don't understand the negative impact to my business. So I'm going to spin up my own program. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, I mean, you hit on two things for me. One is, you know, the everyone thinking that their enterprise is, is unique. Most organizations do have, I won't say most, but a lot of organizations do end up with unique problem sets, at least for their industry, right? Uh, hospitals obviously have unique systems that only hospitals will have. Um, OT environments are, are definitely, you know, different for each, almost every engagement we go on with OT, right? There's different set of custom systems. But when we talk about enterprise security, 99% of enterprise security is the exact same thing. Microsoft security, right? We're talking about Windows, domain controllers, all of the things are almost the same technology-wise, right? And mitigation-wise, it's the configurations and how they're deployed might be a little bit different, but most enterprises are a Windows, you know, or Microsoft domain, right? Maybe it's not 99%, but maybe it's that other five or 10% of their network that is truly custom. So there's that piece. Now that's not saying that their business isn't unique, right? And they don't have unique data or unique value. Right, just their tools are. Yeah, just purely from a security ecosystem. Let's stop pretending that each environment is so unique, right? Right. The approach to security is almost the same for, for most of enterprise side of the network. Again, special environments, OT and that stuff, that's a different beast. Um, you do need a, a special approach to, to some of those environments. But then the other piece is you're kind of hitting on is the targeted or, you know, we often get asked, you know, can you guys do curated Intel for us? That implies that most attacks are targeted. And I think it's probably, you know, again, we don't have the statistics because we don't get to sit around and interview threat actors, but reality is most attacks are not truly targeted to specific organizations, right? 
which means the ransomware case I saw in the medical sector is probably relevant to your financial industry case. The same ransomware families, same you know handful of, of groups, the TTPs they use are probably going to be the same they use regardless of the industry. Um, so this idea of needing special curated intel, that's the piece where your as organization should have a threat intel analyst or what we call actually a security intelligence analyst, right? You should have someone in your SOC who's curating from your sources what matters to elevate it to specific mm-hmm. teams for priority. But from a vendor perspective, you want to know what we're seeing globally because 90% of what we're seeing globally is not targeted activity, so you could see it. I think we need to diffuse this idea that you know activity is always targeted. It's, I think, it, in my opinion, it's very rare that someone's like, I want to take down that organization. That's usually either nation state stuff for a specific intelligence requirement they have or hacked to this because your organization made it the news for something they don't agree with, right? But when it comes to cybercrime, it's hard to say how much of that's really targeted, truly targeted. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I think a lot of big fish end up in their nets just by chance. The initial access brokers happen to pop somebody coincidentally, sometimes even at home, and then they discover there's more than one mail account on the system that they've gotten access to. And suddenly they realize, oh, I have somebody at a bank and this is their home account, but they read their mail on the same device. And now I know where they're at there and I can, you know, and then that's how they became, you know, quote unquote targeted with the initial, you know, entry point was frankly, fairly random. I would agree with you. So you mentioned OT. So OT, IT, and IOT in between, right? There is a strong, you know, overlap for FISSEC in particular around OT, just because of the environments that it typically exists in. And given that that's OT really is also IT. I, you know, I mean, if you really break it down, it's just unique. It's a, a unique application of technology. But given these kind of overlaps, you know, what kind of issues do you think will be the most pressing for industries in the future, like going down the road? Continue physical issues or as, because I'll be honest with you, I predict we see a day where a lot of automation replaces a lot of manpower and I can see OT replacing in particular like shipping, manual, you know, people who are sorting things. That's, I give that occupation five years or so before, you know, they have figured out parcel handlers that can move fast enough, you know, because uh, some organizations use uh, fairly uniform boxes to tackle this, right? But like United States Postal Service, they ship all kinds of stuff. You know, FedEx, another example, they're shipping all kinds of shapes, DHL, all kinds of shapes. And so much so that along came some OT that can manipulate on-sized things. They're just not fast at it yet. So, but at some point that's going to catch up. So I'm curious, what do you think future-wise, what kind of challenges do you see in that space and how do you see security evolving in that regard? So I think one of the biggest challenges that I see from a security practitioner perspective is our engagement and adoption with those business units. Because we saw this with cloud, where businesses were migrating to cloud long before the SOC got visibility, mm-hmm. uh, right? And I, that's a concern that I have with, you know, OT environments have been around for a long time, and it, it's only the last few years, really, we've seen security solutions getting involved in, in the, and the SOC actually getting visibility, right? So we see Configure, a worm that's been out since 2008, 2009. We're getting alerts for the first time because we're getting visibility for the first time, but the malware's been there that whole time. I worry that, much like we did with OT, getting security eyes on late in the game, 
cloud was the same way and it still is the same way. Many organizations are have a dev cloud environment that security doesn't see until it goes into prod, which mm-hmm. is paired to me because it's not really dev. If it's on the internet, you should probably consider that prod, especially if it's got your corporate accounts and data in there. You know, it, and I think we're probably going to see the same thing with more of the, like the, this automation side of OT that you're talking about. I think a lot more physical processes are going to be automated with OT systems. So I just encourage the, on the defender side to get engaged with your OT IT business leaders and making sure that we're no longer the department of no, but we're the department of yes, but right. And then we really try to understand it, right. Um, understand the telemetry that's going to come out of there, understand the threats that, that could face there, the risks that they're facing and really be a partner to those business units. So if they do invite us to the table early, you know, the flip side, not to blame the business units, cause I definitely have seen those operational business unit invite us as defenders. And we're like, oh, another meeting. Yep. I'm not going to go to that meeting. And then we say we're blindsided, right? So if you're a defender and you are getting invited to those meetings, show up, right? And participate, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But that's my fear is that businesses innovate way faster than what security does. And we need, even though we're strapped for people, we're strapped for time, we need to get engaged with those business units because our job is to secure the whole of business ops, right? And so if those are network systems, then we as cyber defenders need to understand them and, and figure out how we can help defend them. Sure. Yeah. That's the mantra of business, right? Innovate or die. Like you either, that's either what you do or you don't. Uh, and business will leave security behind, you know, seven days a week and twice on Sunday. And, you know, that kind of department of no, that worked for a long time when it was all like black magic wizardry and nobody really knew what other businesses were doing as far as technologies go. But like you said earlier in our session here, they're largely the same. And people now, technology isn't new and they sometimes have been at two or three positions at two or three different companies and they know like what it looked like there, what it looks like here. So you can't really go in and make it sound hard anymore. You have to go in and look like, okay, well, how can we do that? But unfortunately, I think a lot of decision makers lived through that time where it was like, you know, your nerd wizard in the corner who said we can't do anything because it's dangerous and therefore we just didn't do anything because it was deemed dangerous. Stifled business made uh, deals go away. And without the business, there is no security, like, because there's nothing to secure. But I think that we have, as practitioners, I think that we have, I won't say spoiled the milk, but we have definitely left it out of the fridge for for a while, right? Like, uh, they're not yet cooled back off to us to where they want to bring us back to the table because who knows how many untold decisions fell to security. It was poo-pooed. And then like six months later, they saw somebody else do it, beat them to market and knock their pants off. Right. And that's reality. That stuff happens. So I do hope that at some point, like you said, practitioners start with, yeah, but instead and try to get us back into those circles. Because I know CISOs right now who are given like five to 30 minutes and 30 minutes is like unheard of, but most of them get like five, maybe 10 minutes to speak to their board, you know, and they're trying to inform them. Like you were in the army. I was in the Marine Corps. Number one job of a century, right? Is to inform the rest of the organization what you have observed. This is like your number one job. If a meteor flies by, you're supposed to log that in a logbook, you know, and like as it traverses a base, for example, there should be, you should be able to physically tell what direction this thing was moving across the base based on log entries from log manuals as it, you know, went that way. But unfortunately, these decision makers are out 
piloting a company without really any of the input from the security team because they're not welcome to come because all they do is cost money and tell us what not to do. You know, so I also, I, I really hope that that changes. So being mindful of the time, uh, most of our folks listen, you know, like I was telling you earlier, a lot of our folks like to listen over lunch and stuff like that. So one last question, which sometimes this blows up to be the biggest question, but three actionable piece of advice that you can give to security practitioners and or decision makers listening in. Yeah. Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I hate that we call them soft skills because they're the hardest, but learning to communicate, right? If you're a defender, exactly what you said, you have to take a big body of technical data and make it clear and concise. So I mentor CTI analysts, separate threat intel analysts, and one of the challenges I'll give them is give them the, our annual threat intelligence index or the Verizon annual report, right? We're talking 80 plus pages. And I go, you're writing an email to the CISO of a financial company. You get one paragraph and five bullets. Take those 80 pages and distill it down to one paragraph and five bullets, right? Because yeah. ultimately that's about the amount of time a CISO has to decide if they're going to dig deeper or not. You know, I, I've seen the same thing when it supported the Pentagon. You know, big decisions are, are made on on single slides, not 30 slides, right? So if you're a practitioner on the, on the analyst or security operations, security engineer, learn to communicate, you know, clear and concise as quickly as possible for decision makers. That is outstanding exercise. It really is. That's the first effort. You're not the first to bring up communication as the key skill or actual advice, you know, like get good at communicating, but that's probably the most practical example I've seen of how to do it. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So two more. What else you got? You know, for decision makers, I would encourage them to get involved with their actual teams, right? Just as we do, like, we're really good on that on the business side. If you're a business leader, you're going to understand how your business manufactures shirts, right? Or whatever your business ops are. Do that with all of your teams, whether that's security or HR, understand what goes into all of your processes. I will give uh, director John Coker credit for, he was the NKIC director when I was there at US CERT. When he first, the former Coast Guard, uh, you know, boat guy, didn't know much about what we did from a threat intel perspective. He openly says that, so I'm not calling him out there. Uh, <laughs> after he did his first 90 days on board and, and got, you know, the branch briefs, each, each branch of the uh, US or ICS or briefed and said what their capabilities were, he came around and sat with each of the teams and spent, supposed to be an hour, and again, of spending like two and a half hours with our team and was like, show me what an analyst does, right? I may ask dumb questions, but pretend I'm a brand new analyst. And I was like 30 minutes into this, showing him something what we did. And he looked at it and said, I haven't gotten you a, a solution to do that. Why are you doing that manually? And I'm like, well, you've been here for like 92 days, sir. Um, but he, he saw immediately, like, we needed a threat intelligence platform. We were doing all of our enrichment manually through an Excel document and an access database, right? And he immediately saw from his level the decision that he had to make to empower us to be better operators for to be able to afford him essentially, right? And I, I gained a lot of respect for him in, in that practice. He'll never do the job that I showed him that I was doing, but he could see step-by-step step what we were doing and see the, the problems at his level that he needed to move and make happen. And it, it was within a few months we'd started onboarding or uh, doing testing of, of threat intelligence platforms. And I think within a year, we were, we were actually onboarding the solution, which is probably slow in commercial world, but super fast in the government space, right? Curious. So yeah, I would encourage decision makers to understand the atomic parts of their business, not just the one slide that they do get. They get it for decision making. That can be critical. And I understand that we need to be more clear, concise, but go spend time with them. Ask them, you know, the, the 
the Michael Scott joke, right? Explain it to me like I'm five, right? Uh, okay, explain it again like I'm three. Like, let us have the opportunity to show you what we do to support your business. And I, I think it'll help you be a better decision maker, a better leader, but then you also have a, it's a fundamental understanding of how your business really operates. And a last one, drink more Oval Team. Probably the one I, I tell my kids regularly, uh, try to help somebody and learn something every day. Just, you know, small things, right? It doesn't have to be super big book knowledge or a super big task, but mm -hmm. I think it, just to be a good person, we should learn something every day and try to help somebody. So. Yeah, no, that's a big one. Helping people every day is probably one of the most enriching parts of my life. My parents taught me that much like, as you're saying, you know, you're teaching your, your kids. My mom in particular, you know, taught me that. And I learned very early in life that that's actually what life is about is, you know, we're actually all here together and there is a hierarchy, obviously, you know, cause in life that's how it works, but don't get hung up on the hierarchy. Look to see who you can help. Don't pull up the ladder, which is an expression uh, from my neighborhood, at least growing up, uh, you know, a lot of people make it and then they don't help anybody else get up there. I've never agreed with that. Um, so that's definitely good stuff. So that's all the time we have. If Anybody wants to see what you're working on, what you're up to, connect with you, send you questions if they have any, whatnot. Are you on social media? Are you on Twitter? What's your or X or whatever you're supposed to call it now? Well, how do people find you? Yeah, I'm easy to find. It's Killer Grizz is my handle, K-L-R-G-R-Z. Um, if you just search Andy Piazza, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, I have a media blog. I have my, my own blog as well that's slightly migrating to, so half the articles don't look proper, but most of my stuff's out on media. Like I rave and rave about Red Intel programs and how to build teams and stuff like that on there. But yeah, Killer Grizz is my, my, my handle. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks so much uh, for taking time out and coming to chat with us. I'm sure our audience will enjoy the stuff that you had to say and I wish you well and uh, we'll be in touch. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.